As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, there's two things that people, well, there's all kinds of things people are like very attuned to these days, but I would say what's going on with regional banks has mm -hmm. obviously become a huge focus, you know, with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And then what is going on with uh, commercial real estate? And we talked about that recently and everyone knows like the office woes that are hitting major cities like New York, two things that are like top of mind for many people. Well, and I think they they started out sort of separate yes. to each other yes. because there were concerns about commercial real estate yes. um, even before Silicon Valley Bank went bust. But since then, and since we've had the turmoil in the banking sector, the deposit flight, there is a concern that that is going to also start affecting the CRE outlook. And basically, these two things are, yeah. are impacting each other and compounding each other at the same time, because of course, regional banks have quite substantial exposure to commercial real estate. Right. So that was the interesting thing about SVB specifically, which is that there, there seemed to be many problems there. But one thing it was not, it did not really no. seem to be about the credit quality of the assets. It was a rate story. It was a deposit concentration story. But it wasn't about like, oh, they have some sort of like asset side exposure to something that's troubled. But then as you point out correctly, in the immediate wake, a bunch of people like sort of stuck up their finger like, oh, by the way, guys, like these regional banks you're right about, they also are like sort of like disproportionately the funders of Yeah, well, estate. this is it. So there's two things here. So yeah. one, there's concern about the commercial real estate loans that some of these smaller regional banks might hold. Are those actually going to default? Are they going to become distressed in some way? Are they going to be able to refinance them in the yeah. current environment? And then secondly, as you get the stress in the banking system, as you see deposits yeah. pulled from smaller banks, are they still going to be able mm. to pour money into that sector? And those it, two things are sort of impacting each other. They go in both directions, as you as you sort of clarify there. And I think the other thing, too, is like, you know, people like Doom. <laughs> I mean, I don't, but you know what I'm saying? Like people, so like this is the exact type of thing that gets people going and people post all these charts that most people, you know, like don't, aren't really in a, equipped to understand, including myself. Like I don't really, you know, I'm a novice on this stuff. And so I think it's kind of important to like, let's sort of get real. Let's put some numbers and like, yeah. how big of a deal is this? Because there is a lot of like, oh, 
you know, people well, that have the these fantasies is, of 2008 in their right. head and stuff and like that. I think people hear this is a $20 trillion market yeah. and they think, oh, this is a very big deal. But of course, as we spoke about in a relatively recent episode with Rich Hill, it's not a monolithic yes. market. And a multifamily, you know, residential development is different to an office building in downtown New York that might be empty now. And also, you know, a big bank is going to have a different risk profile to the sector than right. a smaller regional bank. So and it's important to dive into the details. Here. Yeah, totally. And, you know, there's office, which we all know, because you could just pull up like a chart of like a big office rate, like a Vornado or something. And then there's medical, which is probably fine. And there's all these different categories. So we really need to, given the interest, we really need to dive sort of like deeper into like, all right, let's talk about some of these exposures. Let's talk about these relationships. Let's get some like real numbers rather than just let's sort of like- Let's get granular, baby. Let's get granular. All right. Well, we have the perfect guest to speak about this. We're going to be speaking to Jim Costello, chief economist over at MSCI's Real Assets team. He was recommended to us by our recent guest, Ben Carlos Typen. He said, this is the guy you want to talk about. That was a really good episode on New York City residential. So I always love it when a guest recommends another guest. So that's usually a good sign. Jim, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Hey, great to be here. Let's just start with the sort of like key question that, that I see frequently asserted, which is that regional banks have more exposure to commercial real estate as a share of their assets than the big banks. Is this just like, is this a fact? Like, and what, is, what does that mean? The thing that people have been highlighting is the fact that regional banks are a bigger share of bank lending to commercial real estate. And they've been taking that as a sign that maybe these regional banks are more of a problem for commercial real estate than anything else. The challenge is people are looking at the Fed flow of funds number mm. in a funny way. The Fed flow of funds database, it's a fantastic thing. There's a lot to dig into there. But if you're not careful, you can look at the wrong figures and people get hung up on the bank lending. But banks are not everything in the commercial real estate lending world. Mm. Banks, we have our own approach to getting at the lending universe kind of working from the ground up from every transaction and every mm -hmm. every building that's sold and figuring out who made the loan. From 2015 to 2019, about 48% of all commercial real estate loans in the universe of properties 2.5 million and greater, that was in the banking realm. So okay. you know, already 48% in the banking realm. And of that, maybe 60% was the local and regional banks. Okay. Now, there's a difference there, 10% and, you know, 60% and 70%. There's a 10% difference. And part of that comes into, we're only tracking everything 2.5 million and up, the institutional universe. If you have a former gas station in Tupelo, Mississippi, that's been converted to a barbecue shack, we're not tracking that. Okay. No institutional investor is really interested in that kind of property. The Fed, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, they have to think about all capital flows. So they're looking at everything that goes in yeah. there. But the, the key point is you can't just look at the banks. You have to look at the life insurance companies. You have to look at the debt funds. You have to look at the CMBS market, CLOs, everything. Right. So just on this point, maybe we can back up a bit and talk about what exactly the concern is here, because my impression is before the collapse of SVB, a lot of it was, well, these commercial real estate loans, you know, whether they're unsecured or secured via CMBS, there's a concern that they're going to be in trouble. They aren't going to be able to refinance. They might default. Banks, I take your point about life insurers and other big investors, but there are a lot of banks who are heavily invested in CMBS. 
us. And then at the same time, now the concern seems to be that with the recent turmoil in deposits, maybe banks start to tighten their lending standards. Maybe that cuts off some financing for commercial real estate. And so you have that aspect of it too. But what exactly is the worry here? Yeah. And banks have been tightening their standards over the last three quarters. You look at the Fed's survey of senior loan officers, they're all getting more cautious, yeah. even before the news on SVB hit. And you know, Jay Powell has been saying that you know, with this event, maybe they don't need to tighten as much because this is this turmoil is creating a little bit more constraint in the credit markets that is helping them to limit the kind of exuberant activity that was underway. The banks will do it naturally now. Right, right. But it's a circular issue. If right. And the issue that we faced during the financial crisis was that you had cash flowing assets that couldn't get refinanced mm. because lenders were afraid to issue a new loan. And so if somebody had to buy it, it was now available in a much lower price which then got into the market data. And then the lenders see, oh, well, prices are falling. I want to be even more restrictive. And it was a vicious downward spiral until you know, all the federal regulators stepped in and put a floor under that negative decline. So that was the safety net that to put a floor under prices. But this time you have that dynamic in play to some degree with pressure on prices to fall. Well, they have been falling recently. And you know, lenders becoming more restrictive when they do originate a loan, it's at lower LTVs than before, at higher interest rates. So you're not able to get the same kind of return expectation out of investment if you do that, which limits deal activity, which pushes volume down. So it's, it is a little bit different than the 2008 situation, though. And th this is the key thing. Every downturn that I've been working through, there's this human behavior to always try and fight the last war. Right. <laughs> Look at the last bad event. And you're looking at that, well, here's what happened. So yeah. I got to look out for those same things here. But all, conversely, not just look out for the same bad things. A lot of the real estate people I talk to are looking for the best opportunities <laughs> that come oh, yeah. out of it, out of every downturn. Everybody's always tried to use the playbook of the person who made money in the last downturn. Everybody wanted to be Sam Zell for a bit, but there's only one Sam Zell. Everybody wanted at the beginning of the COVID crisis, they thought that we would have another downturn just like the global financial crisis. And so buying all the distressed debt like before was exactly the same way to make money. They were wrong then too, because there was different factors at play. This time, there are some things that rhyme with the financial crisis, but going in, we're in a much healthier place. We had loans that were being originated at more conservative terms than before. You know, it's not like you, know, you have all these toxic loans that were being made. The only challenge is that rates have gone up so much that things that were able to finance before, they're going to have to do something else when it comes up for refinancing. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. 
Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, I have a ton of questions. But to start off, like, when it comes to the financing of commercial real estate, and I want to get into like the breadth that is commercial real estate and that it's not just like office buildings in New York City. But when it comes to the financing of commercial real estate generally, is there something about the business model of the small slash regional banks that makes them more natural sources of financing to these projects than some of the, you know, the really big, too big to fail banks? There is regulatory shopping in the financial world. Okay. You have some groups like the debt funds that they're really only regulated at the level of the SEC when they're raising capital. You know, they're making a private loan. There's no state bank yeah. regulator, no insurance regulator. You know, they're just doing their own thing. The local banks, they don't have the same kind of restrictions placed on them as the large national banks. And over time, some of the restrictions have been eased a bit. Yeah, I know some banks have explicitly tried to keep their book of business below a certain level so they don't get that regulatory burden because you know yeah. then there's extra costs that go into it. And just the administrative cost starts to rise at an exponential pace once you get above a certain threshold level for those regulatory burdens. And really, since around 2015, when there were some tightening up of those standards and for the larger banks, the smaller banks started to gain more share mm. of all the bank lending activity. There's a slight diversion, but I actually am really curious about those administrative costs. You said they rise exponentially. And so I'm, I am curious, like, what happens when a bank flips over to that larger size and they all want to avoid it and SVB tried to avoid getting these sort of larger designations, et cetera. But like, what actually does happen internally in terms of the regulatory obligations and how that sort of changes the way the bank must operate. At that point, they have to hire a lot more risk management people okay. and do a lot more work on scenario planning around what happens to different Fed scenarios that the Fed will publish around the economy and potential changes to asset prices, not just in real estate, but other sectors. And you know, it's a big administrative burden. Some of the bank managers that I talked to, the presidents of some of these small local banks, you know, they've noted that when they were hiring during the aftermath of the financial crisis, they felt bad that they were hiring more administrative workers than loan officers, mm -hmm. not the folks who were going out and producing money for them. And the, their worry was, you know, if I go above that threshold, I'm going to have to hire a lot more administrative folks to do all the C-car testing that they were talking about back in the day and run all these different scenarios and just more compliance people. Got it. And so if you're hiring a third of your people who are in compliance and not income producing, you're going to try and avoid that. Also, if you get really big, I think you start to get regulators who are situated on site in your bank, right? Just to kind of monitor how things are going. I, you know, I don't know about that. I do know I was visiting one client once and all of a sudden regulators came in as sort of an announcement that morning they were coming in. And the atmosphere in the place was suddenly very tense. <laughs> so just on this regulation notion, I, it is true that commercial real estate has been on regulators' 
radars, collective radars, as a source of potential risk for some time. What exactly was the concern there? And can you kind of give us a quick synopsis of how that regulation has changed over the Hmm. past few years? Well, in 2015, that was a watershed for certain types of loans. The high volatility commercial real estate regulations came in, HVCRE, so that the loans with shorter terms, lenders had to hold more capital in reserve. So as suddenly it became more expensive to originate loans like that. Construction lending was dead center for that activity because those are typically short-term loans that just pay out very quickly once the construction project's done. And we saw a distinct move in construction financing. There, it used to be something like 70% of construction financing was bank-driven, and that really declined. The debt funds, who didn't face any of that kind of regulatory burden, they really stepped into that and started originating more construction loans. Banks are still the What's prime- What's the number to, yeah, like, so it was 70%, what's it down to? It's, my recollection, it was like 52% okay. recently. So it's still majority bank financing, but the debt funds really ate into that business. And they, you know, some of these lenders, when I talk with them, they complain about their competitors, how they're just so aggressive compared to them. And they kind of lifted the market in this period from 2015 to 2019 because they were originating uh, loans at much higher LTVs, much lower interest rates, and with very few covenants out there because they were underwriting differently than banks. Banks, they underwrite a loan wanting to avoid in a foreclosure situation. They want to avoid what we call in the industry REO, not the band, but you know, REO, the real estate owned situation. They want to avoid that because, you know, if I'm a big bank, what do I know about running an apartment building? Mm -hmm. What do you know, what do I know about managing an office building? I'd rather you know, have the experts take care of that. And I just collect a nice stable yield. So I want to underwrite to avoid that. So I'll put covenants in there to make sure that if occupancy flow falls below a certain level, that there are scrapes of any revenue. So I make sure that I'm whole. So they, they put those kind of things in there. The debt funds, they didn't do any of that because the debt funds, a lot of them started as equity shops that had their own investments and own management in place. And, you know, they viewed it as an opportunity. It might be a situation where I have either a nice stable yield and I can help my investors that way. But if I had the tell situation where there's a foreclosure, I have this equity management shop on the side. I can just take the property Hmm. at a lower basis than before. And I know how to run a property and I could probably do it better than those people who were coming to me for a loan. So I'll put it into that shop and raise some capital to stabilize it and I'll be good. So it's a different behavior. And it's, you know, those were the folks who were the most aggressive and did some of the larger loans in that period of 2020, 2021, when interest rates were so low. And typically they had short terms as well. So we have a wall of maturities coming in uh, 2023 through 2025. And those aggressive loans are the ones that I think are are going to see the most attention. This was exactly what my next question was going to be. But talk to us about what the maturity wall actually looks like at this point in time. Because again, this is where a lot of the worry is stemming from this idea that you have the sort of front loaded wall that is coming due in the next year or two. And how are banks slash private investors, to your point, going to actually be able to refinance those loans? The originators of loans, for them, their ability to refinance, you know, they have a certain cost of capital. 
they'll offer a borrower, okay, we can refinance that loan, but it's at a lower LTV than before. The rate is higher. And if somebody bought a property back in 2013 and the loan matures in 2023, you've had a tremendous amount of price growth along the way. Even though we've had some price declines recently, there's probably still enough that they might be able to refinance that at a higher rate and keep that alive. Assuming that you don't have a problem on income. And I'm going to put that to the side for the moment because yeah. that's another challenge. Mm. <laughs> but just dealing with one challenge at a time here. Yeah. So if you had a long-term loan you're refinancing, yeah, maybe you're not going to get the same proceeds as before, but you might be okay. But if you had a loan that was originated in 2021 when we saw a record low interest rate environment and you had a very high LTV and a record low interest rate, thinking that game would continue forever, you may have a bad day as you try to get that refinance because you're going to go to a lender who will offer you money, but it's going to be at a very low LTV compared to before and with a mortgage rate closer to a 7% than a 3.5%. And so the numbers may not work for those folks. And they're going to have to have, you know, there's three options for some of these folks. Maybe they can do a cash-in refinancing where they bring mm. more equity to the table themselves from their own pocket. And they might want to do that just so they don't end up in a default situation if the property, if they still have an expectation of price growth ahead or income growth, or there's still some fees that make them whole. And you know they think of it as a brand new investment at that point. Or maybe they get some outside investor to bring that cash in a preferred equity situation. And that person gets some of the upside of the project moving forward so that you, the investor, can at least still collect some fees on the project. And then another opportunity is to you know, literally hand the keys over to the lender. A jingle mail. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're making the point about how this might not be 2008, but these are all very 08 type terms, real estate owned and jingle yeah, mail. Yeah, just in a different context. Yeah. But I wanted to, you know, you mentioned setting aside the income question because we've been talking about rates, we've been talking right. about price appreciation. Can you break down, like, where is their income stress? Where is their not income stress within the commercial real estate world? And like, how are you thinking about that particular aspect of it right now? Yeah, the income stress is a bit of a challenge, and there still is a lot of uncertainty around it. Let's start with offices. You are saying earlier, hey, everything is not Manhattan offices, but let's talk about Manhattan okay, offices. Okay, okay. Yeah, please. It's Wednesday today when we happen to be recording walking around the city, there's more people out today because it's a Wednesday. That's when more people are around. But if you're around on a Monday or a Friday, it's usually pretty empty. Hmm. And you know, so people see that and they see that, hey, there are less people coming in. The subway ridership is at like 65% of the yeah. previous peak levels. So obviously the space is being utilized less. That said, the fiscal side of it, you know, the fiscal occupancy, the tenants who are still on the hook for the space, there still is some good occupancy in that direction. You know, there's a lot of sublet space where firms are signaling that they want to get rid of it, but they still are paying. And so there's a short-term challenge that everyone knows that there's going to be a reduction in demand eventually, but right now there's still some income mm. coming in. And so there's that, there's a term in the industry, uh, WALT, weighted average uh, lease term. And if you have a property that has a very long lease term ahead, even if people aren't using it as much, if you have some high quality tenants who are unlikely to default, that might seem like a safe investment. But if I've got a, a tenant who has one year left on the lease 
and I see that the building is half empty most days, I'm going to be concerned about what happens to income there moving forward. So it's a slow motion thing. You know, everybody sees the direction it's going. That's one of the things about real estate. Forget about, you know, I used to work with a bunch of economists in Boston. There's a lot of complex math we did, but forget about all that. The real estate market, there's all these sticky things. You just count the number of cranes and you can see whether you're going to have some construction challenges ahead. You just look at the number of people walking into a building and you can just get a sense of what the potential demand is. All those kind of rule of thumb measures have been telling people that there's going to be some sort of reduction in demand. And we know that's coming, but nobody's really been able to fully quantify it yet. It's something we just have to live through over the next few years before we see all the leases burn off. All right, but that was great. But what about, though, the non-Manhattan office? Yeah. And two, I guess, sort of two interrelated questions, but like Rich Hill, the number he said was 20 trillion. But when we think about that 20 trillion, how much is the sort of like prime city office that might not ever come back to pre-COVID levels? And then can you talk a little bit more about like, are there other, these other areas, medical, et cetera, are they doing fine in terms of like income and income expectations? There's a couple things to digest okay. there. Yeah. The office market, most of the U.S. office market is a suburban market. Okay. And that goes back to the 1970s and 1980s when we saw a surge in construction in those areas. And it's not just you know, suburban New York. A lot of it is the development of the Sunbelt states. And as they entered the modern economy in that time and became service sector economies as opposed to agriculture and, and, and manufacturing. Those office buildings in those areas, they do constitute a large part of the office market. Manhattan, off the top of my head, I think it's about 40% of all CBD office space in the United States. So that's why people like to focus on Manhattan yeah, because well, it's, pretty significant. it's an indicator of where the whole CBD office market is going nationally. But you know that suburban market is a bigger market overall. Okay. And it's been bigger in terms of the deal volume recently. The last, you know, really since 2015, when the Chinese investors pulled back from investing in the U.S., deal volume fell off for the CBD locations. In the past, it had always been sort of half and half. Half of all investment was in suburbs. Half of all investment was in CBD locations. And that really started to turn a corner then when the prices hit a record low and you know there was just very little upside left. So there's been a lot less transaction activity in the CBD locations, even before all CBD the CBD central business. Decision. Central, yeah, yeah. sorry. Central no, no, sure, yeah. yeah. And so there's been a decline ever since. So it's it has been important, but you know, it had been priced to perfection back around 2015. So there wasn't you know that, that same push to continue to invest in it as there had been for more suburban locations. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I want to go back to what you were talking about when it comes to income deterioration and WALT. So, you know, the weighted average lease terms and things like that. Is the implication that the old extend and pretend strategy, which, you know, another blast from the past from 2008 and the years after that, is the implication that that just won't work in the current environment, that at some point you're not going to be able to refinance or there will be some sort of catalyst on the income side that makes it impossible? Yeah, that that is a good distinction. The extend and pretend, it worked for a simple reason. Everybody understood it was a temporary credit market challenge. Mm. You had otherwise cash flowing properties. And if you know the credit market simply stabilized, given that there was some high quality cash flow, you'd be able to refinance at reasonable rates. In fact, the folks who made a lot of money into the recovery period were folks who came in, took buildings that were otherwise cash flowing just with bad debt situations, repositioned the debt, put an appropriate debt structure in there, and then ride the wave of recovery as the debt market stabilized. This time through, you don't have that same opportunity of healthy cash flowing properties. You see properties that have uncertainty around the income moving forward. So it's just not gonna work out the same way. We track distressed asset sales and we don't have a lot of distressed asset sales yet. Again. Everybody kind of sees this coming, but yeah. it's a slow-moving, yeah. sticky market. And everybody knows there's some distressed sales coming, but it hasn't hit in a meaningful way yet. But when we do see some of the distressed sales, when we disaggregate who was buying, it's a different type of buyer of the distress we've seen so far compared to the aftermath of the financial crisis. The aftermath of the financial crisis, was a bunch of suits from New York from private equity firms flying out to cities across the United States buying up these cash flowing assets, you know, repositioning the debt and flying home and just you know, collecting a big nice return. Nice work if you can get it. <laughs> Absolutely. And everybody sees that and thinks, hey, I'm going to be just like those folks this cycle. But the folks who have been buying these properties so far are local developer, owner, operator types. It's people know how to swing a hammer. Hmm. And that tells me that the distress is really more fundamental distress. Hmm. It's not a cash flowing building in Nashville with a high quality credit tenant. It's a dead mall outside of Columbus with you know burnt orange tile and brown carpet from the 70s. And you know, somebody has to reposition that. And it's gonna take somebody who has relationships with local regulators. You know, every zoning board wants to get their hands involved in that to be able to change the use and bring it into the modern economy again. And so that takes a lot of elbow grease, both literally from the physical side and then figuratively just talking with uh, local zoning boards and getting changes and entitlements and land use regulation. There's a CRE guy I follow on Twitter who goes by the handle repositioning play. That's what that means. It just clicked to me. That's what that means, that it's like some mall is like, oh, maybe this could be like – Residential, or maybe this could be like a, a big paintball sort of like thing, but that's what that means, that you have to identify the opportunity to like make it something other than it was. Yeah, and with those malls, you know, a lot of malls that are positioned well relative to transit opportunities Yeah, you know, for highways, and, and so some of them would be great for logistics and local distribution right. activity. However, that flies in the face of local zoning issues where 
you know, local city leaders feel that, oh, it's too beneath them. It's not bougie. It's yeah. not a consumption area. Plus, you know, we're not a low-class industrial town. We want the mall. We want, we want Bloomingdale's because, you know, we're high-end. But they, you know, the reality is the market doesn't believe that. And it's going to take a long time to get some local city leaders to kind of understand where they really sit. But there's another issue that in many states we have that those local city leaders want the retail because it generates more tax revenue right. without them having to tax residents as much. And so that that's the other reason that it's a sticky issue keeping the market from converting the space to what it really needs to be. So this is really fascinating. Just this idea that the buyers we're seeing show up in some of these distressed is not the people who just know how to like you know, do a spreadsheet. How to flip that, it. Yeah, basically. and that people who actually have to under have these sort of more sort of like concrete connections. But I want to get back to some of the specific bank questions and specifically like, you know, let's say we talk about CBD office, like some of these areas that are income stressed, like of that debt out there, how solid are the numbers in terms of like how much is bank, how much is private credit funds? Like how is that broken down? I mean, the originations, we're tracking originations. Okay. We don't have a good measure of the stock. We have some estimates of maturities, you know, given when we know all the loans were originated and the kind of terms that were in place. Measures of stock, gets, get they get tricky because some loans, you know, it might default and we're not going to hear about that. So, you know, I can give a perspective on, okay. on the share of originations. And in the boom period when interest rates are so low and- everyone was excited about the fact that there was some yield on offer in commercial real estate. Those debt funds were around 13% of our originations. And given that they had typically short-term short terms associated with those loans, you know, that's going to be a significant component of the maturities in the near term. Hmm. 13% of the market was high LTV, low interest rate, and very few covenants from these aggressive lenders could be an interesting situation with those situ- with those deals. So just on this topic, how do you see banks and private investors actually hedging their CRE exposure at this moment in time, if they're doing it at all? Because my impression of the space was it was always kind of a difficult one to hedge or go short. And you you do have synthetic instruments like the, the CMBX, which is a derivatives index tied to not that many CMBS properties, I think, which makes it, you know, sometimes a, a not perfect one for one hedge for this kind of exposure. Yeah, hedging the commercial real estate market has been it's been the white whale for many folks yeah. in the industry over the last fifteen years. The firm I'm with now, they bought this company, Real Capital Analytics, back in twenty twenty one. And Real Capital Analytics had been one of the folks trying to get a real estate derivatives index going based on our commercial property price index. We had licensed it out to a third party that was trying to get that going. There are a few other folks trying to get that going. The trade organization, NACREF, some folks are trying to trade derivatives on that. So there were a lot of folks trying to get that going, but it never really took off. And just they couldn't get enough buyers and sellers on opposite sides of a transaction to make any of that work. Again, the market is highly predictable because there's so many sticky elements in the performance of the market that you know if you just for, again forget about econometrics and forecasting, just very simple things. Talking to leasing brokers, any deal that's going to be done in the next six months, they're working on it right now, and so you can get a sense of just future demand that way. 
And so those kind of challenges, everybody saw that. So it's just been hard to make you know, a product like that. Wait, can I just press you on that point? Because it, it, since we're this is a fun episode for me because it's bringing up a lot of 2008 flashbacks. But, you know, <laughs> if you wanted to go short residential real estate pre-2008, you use the ABX. Why is the commercial real estate market so different from the residential market that putting on that big commercial real estate short seems to be much more difficult? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I haven't gotten into that as much, the comparison in that direction. There are fundamental differences in the two product types. You know, there's much more of a, a subsidized finance side on the residential market. The residential market is vastly larger than the commercial market. There's many more single family homes out there. So just more information availability becomes a becomes an issue. You can do a lot more. You go in the academic letter, literature, there's all kinds of folks doing stuff on residential real estate because that's where the data is. There's fewer folks doing work on commercial mm. real estate because it's just harder to get information. Interesting. Okay. I've been working in this sector since 1996, trying to help generate more transparency, more information, just better data sets for the sector. And as much as we've improved since that time, and you know, when I talk to my public markets colleagues over at MSCI, they're like, well, you guys are doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So again, on this sort of like bank question, part of the reason we're even having this discussion again is because in the wake of SVB, people are like, what are the you know what are the landmines i guess maybe that these banks could be stepping out or something what's lurking on the asset side of the bank balance sheets and so when we sort of like I, and i imagine there's no one model bank obviously they're all going to be different but when it comes to the various things that a theoretical bank could have on its balance sheet you know treasuries agency mbs uh, you know some sort of whatever it is like how significant is this really uh, in terms of percentage of their own exposure to commercial real estate? Or how do you think about answering that question? Or how do you think about trying to dive into where this lies? You know, diving into that, um, the FDIC call sheets have a lot of information about some of the exposures, sort of the stock of yeah. loans of different entities. And my colleague, Tama up at Columbia, he did a study, I think it was released on March 13th of all days, and estimated that maybe 200 banks face some challenges in that direction. But what do we mean? Like, because that's a range of things, right? It's like they're going to like take losses, they're going to have write downs versus like people are worried about like insolvencies, et cetera. So, like, how seriously do you view the stress, not to the commercial real estate market, but to the banking system from the exposure that they have? Sorry, can I just tack on to the end of that? What do loan loss provisions actually look like for CRE? Because you would expect that, you know, again, this has been sort of on people's radar for some time. Yeah, I'm not sure what the loan loss provisions were. I don't have insight to that. I just know when they made the loan, sort of the high, the the terms there. Mm -hmm. This is a challenge that that is out there for the sector. You know, as much as we've tried, there are still many things that are known unknowns. It's still an opaque sector on performance. I'm in the office every day. And part of that is every day I use it as a base of operations and I'm going around the city, you know, have a, a few many meetings every week, just talking to people because you pick up so much information that's not in a database, it's not easily accessible because you just have a conversation with somebody, you get a few observations and sort of a sense of direction momentum. 
it is a challenging sector in that direction. And just in terms of like the seriousness, the seriousness that a CRE weakness poses to banks themselves, like what is your judgment on that? Everybody saw what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. You know, they had all this RMBS on their balance sheet. You know, it was a it seemed like a safe product. You know, it was throwing off yield, but in a rising interest rate environment, you know, the asset value needs to be written down. Other entities have the same kind of thing on their balance sheet. Uh, the question that I would be digging into is how many of them have actually taken those write downs so far, and have they been able to replace that capital in other ways before? the bank run started SVB, they were trying to bring in other assets. They were trying to raise capital to shore up their balance sheet. What I'd be looking at is, have other banks been ahead of the curve there? Have they been able to start to step that up? And you know, where do they stand? That's what I would be looking for because anybody who held those kind of securities, yeah. realistically, if they're marketing it to market, they're not worth what they were back when interest rates were so low. And this is the challenge of the medicine that the Fed has to deal with inflation. (laughs) The last time the Fed raised the Fed funds rate at such a rapid pace was in the early 1970s. You know, just they had to put the pedal to the metal here to fight inflation, but it had unintended consequences. You know, back in the 70s, you didn't have these complicated structured products like RMBS. It just, it wasn't something that banks held. And the financial environment was largely a bank and a life company market. You didn't have debt funds in the United States. They had a structure like that in the UK, but not here as much. And you didn't have, CMBS didn't exist at all. So you didn't have complicated products on the balance sheet. So when rates were raised, you know, you didn't have as much of an immediate shock to the banks. This time through, I don't know if they were thinking about the fact that you have a more complicated financial environment today than the early 1970s with more unintended consequences. What are you hearing from the banks themselves? I mean, give us some color because as you pointed out multiple times, this is a very opaque market. It is difficult to get a handle on whether or not people are writing stuff down, what the capitulation point actually is. That is something that I always like, like I noted, walking around the city, just go visit clients, talk to people. You pick up a lot that way. Yeah. Since mid-March, it's been very quiet. <laughs> no meetings and just no conversations with you know, our clients there or with the regulators either. Not that I didn't want to talk with them. It's just they've been busy elsewhere. Interesting. Yeah. One of my favorite forms of sell-side research is when they send all the analysts to go shopping oh, at yeah, like at a the mall. mall yeah. But now it's going to be when they send analysts to just walk around downtown New York and observe how many people are going in and out of office buildings. Yeah, like how many people are in line at a Starbucks or just like those charts, which I'm sure like, you know, everyone's still monitoring those like MTA usage. I just want to go back again. And I think outside of, you know, the sort of non-office, non-central business district real estate, I guess malls, there's some issues, but by and large, is this still more about like a rates pressure than it is an income pressure? Like, is there income stress showing up in other parts? Yeah, the income stress has mostly been a story of properties where the previous economic justification for them is is evaporating. Okay. Malls we've been dealing with for a long time. Right. Like that's a pre-COVID story for a long time. And offices now are kind of where malls used to be, where everybody saw there was a change. They weren't sure how long it was going to take, but it's going to be there. 
offices today are in some cases much like the malls in the past. But you know the other property types, it's not as extreme on yeah. sort of the income uncertainty. Some elements of hotels with some of the convention center locations still not where they were in expensive urban markets. You, know, you don't see as much activity in, in some of those. Although the nature of it has changed, much more tourism and you know, talking with hotel experts, there's sort of been a change in the patterns of daily room rates because there's many more folks who are not doing the come in the middle of the week for a conference or to see clients. It's hmm. many more tourists. So it's changed the nature of some of those right, hotels. Right. But you know, it's largely all about the change in the economic justification of some of the some of the assets. Jim Costello, thank you so much for coming in. This is like such a big topic and this was so helpful in terms of sort of understanding the various dynamics out there. So yeah, that was really great. Thank appreciate you. Appreciate you coming on Outlaw. Yeah, great to be here. Tracy, I thought that was really great. Obviously, a lot there, but this idea that, like, for the most part, and this it speaks to why we really need to do a sort of like office to resi episode yes. soon, and the challenges there that this is not going to be a situation in which the money is accrued to like people who know how to like read a spreadsheet or enter numbers into a model and sit behind a computer in New York, but someone who knows about like actual construction and zoning and relationships, I think is like a really interesting, yeah, this is not the last war. Absolutely. And also the parallels between where shopping malls were in, say, 2015. And I mean, I remember writing those stories from a CMBS perspective. You know, what are we going to do with all the shopping malls? And some of them are going to become like multifamily living centers and things like that. Yeah. And the parallels with the office space now. And the other thing I thought was really interesting was this idea, and I'd never thought of it before, but the idea that the local authorities might want to yeah. hold out for you know retail because they get higher tax income than for resi. That was really interesting to me. And then also just the point about why extend and pretend mm. won't work in that environment, in an environment where you know the cash flow, the income is actually in doubt. It's not just a matter of refinancing again. You know, I think obviously for understandable reasons, there are these concerns about regional bank exposure to the space. But I do think that like people need to remember that there is like a diversity of what's meant by you know commercial real estate and that like a lot of like the risky stuff, like the sort of like fast money, the riskiest stuff, especially in this sort of like low interest rate period with like the worst covenants or the sort of like the worst investor protections, the fastest time to refi was by the sort of like private debt funds was a really interesting point. Yeah. And like the holder, people who have money invested in those private debt funds, like they're probably not going to do great. I would assume they're going to like take some hits, but like that seems better than like having all those like losses be borne by like the banks themselves right. that have these like sort of like key infrastructure purposes. Well, I mean, the good news is to some extent, that's what a lot of yeah. the recent regulation yes. was trying to encourage, which was, you know, banks are more conservative on risky CRE. And there was a lot of recognition that was an area of worry in recent years and that some of that risk would be pushed out into yeah. non-banking entities such as large 
debt funds. But I guess now we get to see well, whether or not that was a good strategy. Yeah, and then still the the point that like part of the reason the regional banks have this exposure is because of the yeah they're less the less burdened than the large banks in terms of the types of risks that they could take. So. Clearly, still risks out there for multiple parties. I do want to do an episode, though, on why commercial real estate seems to be so difficult to short or to hedge. Oh, because yeah. this has been a sort of, it's a little geeky or wonky, but this has been a perennial talking yeah. point in the industry. At various points in time, you see people come out with very creative ways of going short, but yeah. there hasn't been an obvious industry standard other than CMBX, which is definitely not a perfect hedge for a long time. So we should do an episode on that. Yeah, that is interesting because I think people just sort of imagine that like, and I remember this even going back to like 2008, 2009, like just with like credit default swap. Yeah. And people like imagine you just like, go like log into your brokerage, right? And like buy a CDS <laughs> or like whatever, as if like, it's like buying a stock. It's like, why don't you put on a hedge? It's like, well, was someone willing to sell you a hedge for this? Or yeah, was it liquid? Very or two-sided like, market, it's sort of right? this idea that like, there is just that always a hedge out there that someone could have bought sort of like this sort of naive fantasy about how these markets work. Right. Or the idea that everyone has like an ISDA agreement up their sleeve. Well, yeah. Okay. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Jim Costello. He's at Jim Costello, C-R-E. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dash Bennett at Dashbot. Follow all of the Bloomberg podcasts under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots. We have transcripts, a blog, Tracy and I have a newsletter, and hang out with other listeners on the Odd Lots Discord. It's really fun. I'm spending more and more time there. People talk about all the topics we discuss on the show. Go to discord.gg slash Odd Lots. Yeah, 24-7 Odd Lots chat. What could be better? Thanks for listening. business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.